This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, August 7th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. Peer-to-peer apps like Uber, Lyft, TaskRabbit, and Airbnb are causing headaches for the modern regulatory state. But the real value of these bits of software might be helping people in developing countries get on with their lives whether or not their governments agree to it. Matthew Feeney is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. We spoke today. Well, what I think a lot of people don't consider is something that was highlighted by Adam Ozemek in Forbes, where he pointed out that while it might be the case that people in the Western world, like you and me, enjoy Uber and Lyft for its convenience, that the sharing economy and the technologies that allow it to exist could have great benefits in the developing world. People using technology to communicate with one another in regimes that are unfriendly to or even hostile to property rights? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the developing world, it will come as uh, no surprise to listeners that a lot of developing countries are highly corrupt and are not very receptive to economic freedom. And there are a lot of regulatory barriers for entrepreneurs there. Now, I, I think a good example of this to highlight the issue is taxis in the pre-internet age. Now, before the rise of the internet, which allowed for Uh, companies like Uber and Lyft to exist, taxi companies could uh, make the argument that, well, without our regulations, you're just getting in a car with a strange person. And at least we do background checks, and at least we do all other sorts of things. But interestingly, with the rise of Uber and Lyft, the uh, claimed monopoly on regulations is gone. And it's no longer the case that we have to rely on taxi companies to uh, vet people in order for us to get rides. Uh, Now, the argument is that this sort of uh, subversion of regulations could be very, very useful in developing countries if they get the uh, peer-to-peer or sharing economy technologies. It'd be a great way to get around corrupt governments and uh, obstructive regulation. These these technologies are very, very good at providing an alternative. If you live in a corrupt country, uh, it's oftentimes very difficult to secure the property rights you need in order to start uh, competitive businesses. But it's also very difficult to, well, I suppose the best way to put it, it's, it's very difficult to compete. And these sort of technologies are going to be a good way to solve an informational issue about the safety as well as uh, stop businesses. Uh, Ozemek in in his piece wrote something very good, which I think highlights this very well when he wrote, in a country with a corrupt government, would you be more confident having a cab driver with a long list of good reviews or one with a bureaucratically issued license? And in the US, we've seen that oftentimes customers do prefer a driver with lots and lots of good ratings versus a taxi driver with a bureaucratically issued license. In a lot of these countries, the ability to develop uh, social capital and demonstrate that social capital is actually quite difficult. Yeah, I, I think you know, in the Western world, we take it for granted that uh, we can take to the internet and complain when we go to a a restaurant we don't like, or we get a cab ride we don't like, uh, or we go to a film that we don't like. But uh, it's important to mention that uh, internet access in a lot of the developing world is uh, not widely available. Our colleague, Marion Tupi, wrote about uh, the U.S.-Africa's Leaders Summit. And Africa is a good example of uh, how much progress still needs to be made when it comes to access to the internet. The, uh, I mean, as, a, as a means of comparison, in the U.S., uh, 62% of American adults have a smartphone with internet access. And when you consider 18 to 29-year-olds uh, who own smartphones, it's 88%. But in parts of Africa, the 
number of people in Uganda, for example, that occasionally use the internet or have a smartphone is 12%. In South Africa, it's 43%. There's a lot of work that still needs to be done. I mean, these, these technologies can only be used with the available uh, with the available tools like the internet. And with the existing regulatory regimes on buying and selling of goods or, or uh, services, which is mm-hmm. more, I think, what the sharing economy stuff is mm-hmm. is about, uh, like a ho- room mm-hmm. or a delivery of, of products and things like that. It uh, allows people to avoid entirely uh, the regime that is meant to provide you with some sort of assurance. That's absolutely right. And I think importantly in developing nations, it also provides an alternative means of income. I mean, we've seen in the US that people who have uh, full-time jobs can uh, sell things on uh, TaskRabbit or sell their services on TaskRabbit. They can part-time as a Lyft driver. They can offer rooms or couches on Airbnb. So anyone who's concerned about the well-being of people in the developing world should be very for the sharing economy there because it is a way of people uh, helping provide for themselves. Of course, this all comes back to uh, the importance of economic freedom. Uh, Pew earlier this year released a study of uh, internet in emerging nations, and they found a very, very strong correlation between the internet use and national income. And as, as uh, our colleague Marion has pointed out, if you want economic prosperity and growth in places like Sub-Saharan Africa, you need economic freedom and not foreign aid. The, the, is, this is a situation where governments could do a lot more harm than good. Matthew Feeney is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Read more of his work at Cato.org.